and good morning, evening, afternoon, and happy Halloween wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema, and first, a word from Deadly Grounds Coffee. Everyone thinks because you're a zombie, you don't know good coffee. Well, they're wrong. We have very active lifestyles. It's not all wandering the countryside aimlessly or scaring passing motorists. And we all love a good cup of joe. And there's only one brew that gets my seal of approval. Deadly Grounds Coffee is my guilty pleasure. Bold, robust, delicious. It's coffee that can wake the dead. <laughs> With over a dozen different roasts and flavors, Deadly Grounds can satisfy the most finicky of coffee addicts. The aroma is so intoxicating. It brings all of my neighbors out of the woodwork. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. It's good to get a little deadly. Use the front door! Oh, they're so disgusting. Well, Halloween Kills came out and the reviews came in. And the internet quickly pointed out that the film was divisive and it was prompting abject support or derision and in a lot of cases, hateful feelings and blocked accounts and public attacks. And folks, I don't know why. I mean, I'm asking, why? So I want to also state before I go any further, this thing is filled with spoilers. If you don't want to know anything about Halloween Kills, do not listen any further. So I'm giving you that chance right now to hit pause, cancel, stop, delete, whatever it is. But there are spoilers ahead. So I'm going to give you my opinion on the film and its 2018 predecessor. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on 2018, but you can't talk about this one without talking about the 2018 film. So bear with me. And I'm going to support all of this with a professional filmmaker's insight and data. That's right. I write and make movies, specifically horror films. So I somewhat have some insight into this. And guess what? You can listen to it. You can agree with me or disagree with me. It really makes no difference to me. That's because film is art and it is subjective. And I'm going to swing back to that in a moment. So first, before we get into this, here is the opening question I have for all of you listening, and it has nothing to do with the content of Halloween Kills. So are you ready? Just listen. Okay, here we go. Here's your question. Just what do you get out of either staunchly defending the film or attacking it? I'm not talking about casual, regular defenders who saw the film and enjoyed it, or those who saw it and didn't like it. I'm asking those who block people because they disagree and offer a negative opinion or comment. I'm asking the ones who lob verbal assaults, harassment, or even abuse or threats because someone didn't like a movie. So let me ask you, do you own stock in Blumhouse? Do you collect any kind of royalties that are based on the film's financial performance? Did you make some kind of bet on the film's financial success and you might be out of a lot of money? Look, I'm willing to bet the answer is no to all of those. You just simply love horror, you love slashers, you love Michael Myers or the Halloween franchise, and all of that is fine. 
Are you so vested into a fictional film that you will block anyone at the very word of a negative comment? This is why I say the word fan has a negative connotation with me. Fan is short for fanatic, which implies mental instability. Do people get like this over a painting, a sculpture, a book, a a building and its architecture? We know how people get into it with sports teams, and that is a cinema topic all on its own. For the first part of this episode, I want to know why anyone is so vested in a film that an individual feels that violent or virulent behavior in either support or against a film is acceptable and most of all, normal. Why do some people take it so personally? I mean, I've cited this before. I'm just going to give you a quick example. I've had people block me and verbally attack me because I offered up some opinions on the Star Trek movies. And one of my opinions was for one guy who he didn't like it and instantly blocked me was that I felt the original 1979 motion picture is a beautifully made film, but it is incredibly boring. And this guy blocked me after that. There was another guy who had a Sam Loomis account, a Dr. Loomis account, and this goes back a couple years, who was so upset with me that I did not care for 1981's Halloween 2 that he blocked me. He unfollowed me first, and then he blocked me. I'm like, dude, first of all, you're playing a fictional character. You're really not Sam Loomis, and you're not Donald Pleasance. Why are we as a society so angry and almost demand that people think the way that we do? What does blocking someone get you other than an illusion of control? Look, I, t- I talked about this before too in, in just recent podcasts. I expressed my opinion on the Howard Stern show with Gary Delabate that I felt both he and Howard were wrong in their belief that The Shining is one of the scariest movies ever made. And I, I respectfully disagreed. I didn't think it was at all. And, and I've talked about this. I'm not going to waste time in this podcast. But I backed it up with data. It wasn't like I just said, oh, The Shining sucks. It doesn't suck. It's a beautifully made motion picture. And look, you can go listen. Uh, I'll provide links. I'm going to provide links to a number of previous episodes to show you all the data to back up my opinions. So just bear with me. Please look at those links and maybe listen to an episode or two and you might learn something. I express the same thing about The Lost Boys. Look, a lot of people love The Lost Boys, and that's great. If the movie brings you joy and pleasure and you enjoy it, this is what I just wrote a book about. It's what the movie brings us for our memories. I get all of that. For my personal opinion, the movie is well made, but it's a lot of style over substance. It's not particularly scary. Uh, It's edited in the way of an MTV music video. Uh, I I just thought it was all flash and and not much else, but that's my opinion. And certainly a lot of other people disagreed with me because the movie was a major financial success. I'm not saying it was terrible. I'm not saying it's the worst movie ever made. I'm simply saying that I express my opinion that I feel that The Lost Boys is a tad bit overrated. And I don't attack anyone for liking any of these films that I've just mentioned. And why would I? What do I get out of it other than a brief moment of satisfaction maybe or or even superiority? 
Is it the need for the last word? And I think that might be part of it. We need to have that drop the mic moment, that last word. Blocking ensures we get the last word. But why? Here is a clip from My Camp Dread where I think Eric Roberts explains the need for the last word perfectly. I find the phrase, just saying, to be a passive-aggressive pussy way of trying to get the last word. If you want the last word in an argument, just say, last word. It throws the other person off. You're saying, I claim the last word, period. That's the way to do it with balls. Now, I have talked at length with people on Twitter and at conventions on, on criticisms of my films. Some are beautifully expressed. I, I mentioned recently that Slackjaw Punks uh, did a wonderful negative review on my Camp Dread that you just heard. And um, I absolutely love that review. I thought it was terrific. It was well done. It was supported by critical thinking and intelligent analysis. And the person who wrote it got film. Hey, you didn't like the film. I'm sorry to hear that. But man, you can write and you understand film. Look, sometimes you get positive reviews that I don't agree with. When someone gave a glowing review on my Camp Dread and stated that it was a sequel, it was the best of the sequels to Sleepaway Camp, well, that, that whole review meant nothing to me, and I disagreed because it isn't, period. One of the famous stalwarts in, in trying to avoid a, a head-on collision on, online is when people say, well, I guess we'll just agree to disagree. And you know what? Sometimes that works, but there are times when, no, we're not going to agree to disagree. Sometimes you're just fucking wrong. The guy that called Camp Dread a sequel to Sleepaway Camp is wrong. When I was accused of racism and trying to use the word nigger in the fields for laughs, I did not agree to disagree. The critic was wrong and knew nothing of film or art for that matter and had about as much business reviewing <laughs> you know, reviewing movies as I have as much business as writing a technical manual for a nuclear reactor. Look, it's okay to be wrong. And it's okay to have your own opinion. It's more important to be able to support it and understand that not everyone, no matter how brilliantly you defend your position, will agree with you. There is a bigger societal issue going on. There is a growing belief that we are not heard. No one is listening to us. And we demand to be recognized, goddammit. Our individual opinion trumps someone else's. I mean, discourse has devolved into Jerry Springer shouting matches. We saw that in the recent election during the debates. We saw this coming on for decades as talk shows were really not much more than agenda-driven garbage to glorify celebrities and then white trash America and the lowest common denominator in communication. Here is my assessment of Halloween Kills. You can like it or not. It's all up to you. The original 1978 film Halloween is an almost perfect execution of suspense and horror done at a basement level budget that forced terrific writing, a deft hand in directing, and a dedication to the best production values possible. The original 1978 film tapped into a mistrust and disillusion of the 1970s. It focused on a relentless evil that the system not only failed to contain, 
but could not stop its spread. You could draw allusions to the coming AIDS crisis that would also make these kind of slasher films almost irrelevant after the 80s. I mean, after AIDS hit, Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees, they're just not all that scary. And you can hear about this more in another episode I have, which is in my show notes, called The Relevance of Monsters. Now, Halloween looked at an aging society, the greatest generation, the baby boomers. They're getting old. And they built a world that their teenage children and grandchildren thought they controlled. And Michael Myers is a disruptor to that world. He is a tornado that touches down and randomly destroys everything in short but violent rage. The original 1978 Halloween is an almost seamless screenplay that allows its story to unfold and its characters to develop. Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode is more than a final girl. We got to know her a little bit, and audiences responded and rooted for her. They liked her. Now, 1981's follow-up, Halloween 2, was really nothing more than a retread. So there you go. For those of you who love Halloween 2, I didn't. It was made to do nothing more than make money. Dino De Laurentiis, who was one of the new producers on it, wanted the gore upped because audiences had changed, he said, in the last three years since the original Halloween. The original editor and art designer and one of the shape actors, Tommy Lee Wallace, told me himself that when he read the script for Halloween 2, he was supposed to direct it. His heart sank. Halloween 2's script was everything they tried to avoid with the original Halloween. In one interview, Tommy called the script for Halloween 2 the anti-Halloween. There were rumors of Carpenter reshooting certain scenes and effects himself. It didn't matter, as Tommy Lee Wallace pointed out. Whomever directed Halloween 2 was just going to be a hired gun. The movie was going to make money, no matter what. And it did. I think of all the reviews for the miserable Halloween 2, James Bernardinelli, he, he gave the best, I'm going to give you a quote here. And he said, the main problem in Halloween 2 is the film's underlying motivation. Halloween was a labor of love, the original film, made by people committed to creating the most suspenseful and compelling motion picture that they could. Halloween 2 was impelled by the desire to make money. It was a postscript, not a very good one. Slapped together because of box office success was guaranteed. Now, Carpenter believed less was more with the original Halloween. The sequels and remakes will do the opposite, showing that almost always more is less. And that brings me now to 2018's sequel reboot, Halloween, that I will discuss briefly. We are now in full franchise mode in 2018. And a lot changed since 1981's film from Halloween 2, even within the original franchise and aside from Rob Zombie's two reboots. I'm not going to talk about those. Now we were faced in 2018 with a Marvel and Disney machine to emulate. That's what they wanted to do. Blumhouse definitely wanted that. It was about more than a franchise. It was about fan delivery service. And thanks to the internet and fanboys who grew up during its rise, the revenge of the nerds was upon us. I won't spend a lot of time on the various sequels, and I'm not spending any time on Rob Zombie's work. The original Halloween franchise is uneven at best, with each installment garnering its own fan base. 
It split off into two timelines, if you remember. There was the original 1978, and then there was the H2O timeline, taking it back to the original 1978 and 81 films. And again, no, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch is not a timeline. It has zero to do with Carpenter's 1978 original, and it has nothing to do with the 2018 film or Halloween Kills. No matter how badly you want it to, despite featuring silver shamrock masks, it just doesn't fit into anywhere because it's not part of the timeline. It was never created to do that. I did two previous episodes and their links will be on in my show notes on uh, 2018's Halloween. One of these episodes looked in detail at the 2018 film and it's titled, We Need to Talk About Michael. So here we go, Halloween and Michael Myers fans. This is my professional opinion on Halloween Kills. Again, spoilers are coming up. Get ready, because some of you are going to agree, and some of you aren't. Some of you will stop listening, and a bunch will never listen to this. Imagine that, because that's how conversation goes. I believe the 2018 film was good, but it was mediocre. But it was well made. The first 20 minutes of the 28 film, 2018 film recreated some of the original 1978 magic in that asylum scene when the two, uh, uh, what were they, podcasters, <laughs> uh, walked in to Michael and, and showed him the mask. That was great. There were some really cool moments there. However, once the movie got going, it went right where the trailer for the film took us. There were few to no surprises, and, and there were some questionable casting as well, too, and, and a bad third act reveal with Michael's doctor that seemed really desperate. If you saw the film, you know what I'm talking about. The real thing about 2018's Halloween is that it was made by fans. It was made by fanboys, and really people who think they know horror, but they really don't. They love watching horror movies, but when tasked with understanding what makes them truly work, the actual mechanics of a horror movie, they can emulate, but they don't get to the inner workings of the genre. It's like doing an elaborate paint-by-numbers painting and calling yourself an artist. Or loving cars, but only because they look good, have power, and they can move fast, and you call yourself a mechanic. There is no knowledge of what makes the engine work, an understanding of aerodynamics, engineering, art, or design. You, you don't understand the car, you just know you like it. The original Halloween is beloved because of nostalgia fueled by the internet that has given it an immortality that even the original filmmakers could never have comprehended. Today's generations, many of them, look at the film as, as slow, almost no blood or violence. Some have even said it is boring. I know because I have seen it firsthand and heard it firsthand from people that didn't grow up during that time from 1978 on. And that's okay. The real fans are those who grew up with the film and lived through its historical context as well. As I started out, the world in 1978 was very different than it is now. What scared us then doesn't scare us now. And for many... It's hard to get that. Look, I've seen that at conventions where you get the kids following behind people, their parents or, or older people, and they go up to Kane Hodder or Tony Todd, or, or it doesn't matter, you're, you're a horror person of choice, and they go, oh my God, I was 14. 
when I saw your movie, this movie, whatever movie in the theater, at the drive-in, on home video, and it did this to me. That's what I just wrote a whole book about. The experiences that, that horror movies have given us. And that's great. But sometimes they have these kids in tow that might be anywhere from 12, 13 up. And they just kind of look at their parents like, I don't get it. Like I'm here because my dad or my mom or both of them drug me here. But I don't get why they love all this stuff so much. I get that they like horror. I like horror. But I just don't get these fervent memories that are attached. And again, that's okay. Halloween 2018 wisely got rid of that silly brother and sister plot and bypassed it, creating yet a third timeline where Michael was arrested that night after Loomis shot him off the balcony in front of Lori. Lori never got stalked in Haddonfield Hospital and life went on for her, leading her down a survivalist road filled with wreckage from that fateful night. We ended with Lori in the 2018 film in the back of a truck having left Michael to burn in a trap she set and waited 40 years to spring. Keep that in mind. Now Halloween Kills opens that same night, much like the ignored Halloween 2 did in 1981. Now when you discuss film, you need to avoid the word sucks. Sucks is a base term for those who can't either express themselves intelligently or simply dismissive without any real examination of what they just experienced. It's a very base term. Even Jaws the Revenge doesn't fully suck. I know a lot of you know that I joke about this online, but I did really find a few positive things about it. But you can hear that in my previous episode, in episode two, Jaws the Worst. For me, Jaws the Revenge is the worst movie of all time. But I support that statement intelligently and with fact and detail to substantiate my dislike for a movie that, in my opinion, wasn't really a movie. Now, Halloween Kills doesn't suck. It is a deeply flawed film that also has several things of true merit. So let's get into that. The score to the film is fantastic, and it's done by a father-son team of John and Cody Carpenter. In fact, the score evoked Escape from New York for me and nicely weaves into the fabric of the visuals. I think the score is terrific. The biggest positive is the love and attention to detail for recreating this flashback scene to 1978 and the original Halloween and the film's look and lighting and feel in that flashback in the first 20 minutes is incredible. Like I swear you could take that flashback scene and put it alongside the footage of the 1978 film and you couldn't tell the difference. The grain, the texture, the look, Dean Cundy's lighting, whoever did that, man, they knew their stuff. My props to the production designer, the art designer, and the DP because they nailed it. It looked like I was watching events from 1978's film. And then we got a really big surprise. Before I went in to see the film, I did tweet to somebody, I really hope there's a nod to Dr. Loomis, to Donald Pleasance in this. And, and there is. They did it with the deep fake digital effects to recreate Donald Pleasance. And for me, this was like seeing Peter Cushing in Rogue One. My jaw literally dropped. I was like, get the fuck out. This is great. I was really impressed. And the only thing 
that took me out of that whole illusion of thinking I was looking at 1978 was the voice they used for Dr. Loomis. I mean, Pleasance had such a distinct voice. They tried, but the voice wasn't Dr. Loomis, and that's okay. I mean, I bought it. I really, really liked it and almost wished we went into a film all about that night again and following went on from there, what went on from there. But however, just keep in mind, this great asset also cripples this film. The love of the original by the fans who made this movie also cut it off at the knees. So let me explain. The biggest problem with Halloween Kills is its script. The dialogue is terrible. I mean, it's truly bad, it's flat, and it's cliche. You got cops walking around with existential philosophical murmurings about being in a small town like Haddonfield. They're waxing philosophical in the house of a serial killer that was still on the loose and likely in that house who just murdered not only three teenagers, but your boss's daughter. The cops are talking about all this. They're having this, man, I would have my gun drawn and I'd be ready to kill this fucker. You need to be more engaged in the moment, policeman, than reflecting on the trappings of a small town. It's ridiculous. It's silly. Uh, there's a scene, a, a fake, you know, scare where a little boy, uh, uh, you know, Lonnie, the one that Dr. Loomis yelled at that will grow into an adult that we'll see, uh, he crumples on the sidewalk because he sees Michael. And the cops come up to him. Look, you're on the trail of Michael Myers, this guy that killed every guy in a white mask. He's going around killing people. You see this little boy crumpled up on a sidewalk and they're busting his chops. And the kid's like, is he still there? You think the cops have been like, who kid? Is it the guy that we're looking for? Instead, they kind of just go with this. I'm sitting in the audience going, well, what, what are you, the Keystone cops? You guys are morons. Like get moving, find this fucker. And I know what you're saying. It sounds like I'm nitpicking, but hear me out. Also, this whole thing, the, the catchphrase, the tagline of the film, evil dies tonight, let me tell you, man, it's cringeworthy. It reminded me of how the filmmakers in Independence Day 2 Resurgence kept trying to get us to cheer with the characters, all of them trying to deliver some kind of that. Remember when the president gave that big speech in the first Independence Day? I, mean, I remember audiences applauding about that. And they were trying to deliver this again and again and again, and nobody was buying it in the theater. Everybody's sitting there real quiet. Well, that's how it was in the theater where I saw Halloween Kills to the point where there were people laughing at it. It was just so stupid. You know, you got nurse chambers. Um, somebody, I, I think it's Anthony Michael Hall said something about, you know, uh, I, I forget. It was something, he says the line in nurse chambers from the original film. Uh, she yells out, she's the first, I think, to yell it out. Evil die, and evil dies tonight. Nobody fucking talks like that. And crowds chanting it at the hospital and, and, and all of this stuff. People yelling it failed to arouse anyone I saw this with. And like I said, it got a lot of laughter from a few people around me. It was just stupid. And we have yet another red herring, the escaped mental patient from the bus wreck in the 2018 film. Is he working with Michael? Is Michael using him as a distraction? I mean, this could have been interesting. But no, he was just there to throw the audience off and provide a few jump scares because Michael was over here, but now he could possibly be in this car. But no, this is the mental patient. The writers do some kind of sympathy scene moment at the end with Julie Greer 
in the hospital. Like now we're suddenly supposed to feel sorry for this guy. And I, I guess, you know, this is to show compassion for those out there that will get on their social justice warrior crusade about exploiting the mentally ill in horror films. It's almost like the writers are saying, oh, no, no, no. We respect the mentally ill. We're not exploiting them or making fun of them. Look, the poor guy. We feel so bad. He's trapped by the angry mob. And then, of course, instead of, you know, helping him, they allow they write him to, you know, fucking jump out the window and be, you know, lasagna all over the sidewalk. This whole movie also is a lot of walking around waiting to discover something or something to jump out. And now let's go back to the very beginning of Halloween Kills. Lori waited 40 years building an elaborate trap in her home. It wasn't a home. It was a trap for when Michael finally returned for her. And it worked like a well-oiled machine. And in reality, this should have finished it all after that first film. But somehow, Lori, she missed a flaw in her plan. And somehow, there's a side room in that basement with a metal fireproof door that Michael could use to escape the Inferno set for him. Now, how the hell do you do that? Nothing is explained and that room should not exist, period. To me as a writer, it was like this, hey, they're all sitting around the writing table. Hey, I know how to do this. Like, create this device. There you go. Problem solved. Michael lives. On with the story. Lori built everything, including that really bad room, and never thought it could be used as a safe room against the flames. Right. The made by fans for fans mentality went to work to bring back every living actor from the original film that could have a part and, and every fictional one for fans in the audience to ooh and ah over. Oh my God, look, there's, there's Tommy Doyle. Oh, look, there's Lindsay Wallace. There's, there's, you know, the guy that crossed the street in, in scene 46. Jesus Christ, it sounds more like Star Wars. And then you've got Charles Cyphers who would have sufficed in a cameo in the footage that they used from Halloween 2, putting the sheet over his dead daughter's face. But instead, he just happens to be sitting at the hospital desk as Laurie's brought in, and they give him a quick shot. Like, the director just gives him a quick shot. He's like, Laurie? Like, how does he know it's Laurie? This guy, isn't he, like, at least 80? Why is he still working? Is he on the force? Is he a hospital security guard? And what the fuck is this guy doing with a gun? In the end... They just killed Charles Cyphers off. Sheriff Brackett is killed. There was no reason for him to be there. He gave nothing to the story. He offered no insight. And he had zero interaction with Laurie Strode. Why is he here other than to throw him in so fans go, oh my God, it's Sheriff Brackett. But who's going to remember that other than the people that are diehard fans of this and probably over the age of 40? Let's stop here for a moment and talk about that big showdown ending where the town surrounds Michael. Nobody brings a fucking gun other than Sheriff Brackett? Really? I, you see all these people closing in. They manage to find uh, the pitchfork or whatever. They manage to find two by fours and some asshole kid brings a hockey stick? Why didn't everybody bring guns? Why didn't everyone bring a shitload of guns? Hell, even those rednecks in Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, all showed up in the back of trucks, armed to the teeth. You're all after this guy? Nobody could run home and say, shit, I'm going out after Michael. 
Let me get home and get my fucking gun. There was like one gun brought to this whole thing. What a ridiculous ending. It is terrible. And then, you know, they're beating Michael and we've got golf clubs and baseball bats and all this stuff. And Michael falls to the ground and he's lying there still for the longest time. Is he regenerating? What's he doing? He's lying there very still. His fingers are trying to move for the knife and they kick the knife away. Why didn't Sheriff Brackett just walk right up, hold that gun to the back of his head and just shoot his brains out right there? Again, this is like Austin Powers. And here's the other thing about this ending. When did Michael become John Wick? Michael is pushing 50, maybe a little over 50 at this time. However, why is Michael subtly vested with John Wick or even Jedi fighting powers? We might as well have just called up the Duel of Fates music as Michael goes in, killing everybody's rushing him. Everybody's coming after Michael and he's just knocking this one back and he's throwing this one, he's stabbing this one, he's killing this one. Why is Marion Chambers, Nurse Chambers here? other than to die in the fan-pleasing way that echoes Michael's original car attack upon her in 1978. She's just here to die. That's it. She offers no insight. She does not further the plot anywhere. She gives nothing. And speaking of which, why is a talent show or whatever it is, some kind of small bar karaoke thing, the place for Anthony Michael Hall's Tommy Doyle to lecture the populace on Michael? And what happened 40 years ago? Who thought that was the good time? Hey, everybody, I'm going to stand up. Thank you for the stand-up comedy. That was great. Thank you for the karaoke. Now I'm going to be Captain Buzzkill here, and I'm going to remind everybody about the shit that happened here 40 years ago. So let's kill all the fun and enjoy my Debbie Downer speech. Hall is entirely miscast, looking more like a truck driver or angry, angry garbage man than Tommy Doyle, who was tormented by the boogeyman as a child. He is here to be the vigilante rabble-rouser and given nothing to do but yell, evil dies tonight, and smolder into the camera and somehow be the guy that's supposed to get some kind of redemption. When, when did Tommy Doyle get so fucking angry? There was nothing about that. Last we saw him, he was this little kid who was scared, asking Laurie about the boogeyman. Now he's some angry, pissed-off dude that could beat the shit out of people in a bar. I don't get it. And we know he's going to die because he has to. And his death is silly at the end of that John Wick Jedi moment. A lot of people have also groused about the gay couple. Put that in quotes. We have become so insulated in our echo chambers that if we discuss film and intelligently ask questions, we are shut down by the labels of homophobia, transphobia, and all the other progressive left labels from the tolerant to shut down the conversation. Look, Michael McDonald is one of the couples, uh, one of the characters of this couple, and he's a comic actor. His mere presence to me evoked Stuart and Mad TV. Look what I can do. Look what I can do. We instantly don't take him seriously. And the introduction to the couple who have renovated Michael's home, and nicely, I might add, place looks great, is with an awfully executed prank by some obnoxious kids that evokes Halloween too. It was stupid, and really all it does is introduce the pitchfork to us on that porch that you just know is getting used later. In fact, I think the one guy, Big John, he hits it with his golf club just to let us know it's not a prop. It's not plastic. That fucker is a real metal pitchfork, just in case you're dumb in the audience. 
There's nothing funny about all of this. The kids were obnoxious and real kids that age, they aren't that clever to fake that elaborate razor blade puking thing and they don't have that kind of sassy, acidic wit. Our two guys in the Myers house are presented as gay buffoons. Why not make them serious characters and not thin stereotypes? Where's the LGBTQ community for this, asking this? Instead, I guess they should just be glad gay characters are represented. I think that's more insulting than someone complaining about just shoehorning gay characters into the story. As a straight man who writes horror and makes horror for a living, I felt embarrassed for anyone gay sitting around me as anyone Asian must have felt watching Mickey Rooney play his role in Breakfast at Tiffany's. I mean, in the end, the couple is dispatched, doing nothing to move the plot forward, and are just there to add to the body count. I think that's insulting. Jamie Lee has an extended cameo in this film. I'm telling you, they usually like now to make sure that the big names are in it for at least 20 minutes. You can just see the editors looking at the time code in the editing room and it just rolls over to 20 minutes of the film with Jamie and they go, and we got it. She's marketed as the star of this movie and, and they make it look like she and Michael are going to face off, but she never leaves the hospital and has some inexplicable talk with the sheriff who miraculously survived his throat slashing from that first film, from the 2018 film. I was surprised she agreed to do this considering her public pronouncements of demanding quality. Her ending soliloquy about Michael and evil is so heavy-handed. It might sound intelligent to the people who came for just the gore, but for those who see this for what it is, that dialogue at the end is ham-fisted, overly dramatic, and just plain fucking silly. I get what they wanted to do. We create our own monsters. We are the monsters. The violent and stupid vigilante crowd at the hospital, well, they could be QAnoners or the Capitol rioters or, or rejects from your average Trump rally. I get it. This was no monsters or do on Maple Street ending. And we don't even have this great kind of ending that Adrian Barbeau gave us in the fog with her closing statements. I mean, maybe if they had gone in that direction, we might have had something better. Laurie's third act reveal, and I put that in quotes, that, that she brought this upon the town goes nowhere. How? Then the sheriff says, no, this is his story. Michael's there for the sheriff. He's the reason why Michael is here. And that sheriff never leaves the hospital room either. By this point, who the hell cares? Because the real question is, why did Michael come back? Why is he here in this town? I mean, Loomis is dead. Michael's clever. He could have gone anywhere. Why is he home? And wouldn't you think that everybody would know to go to the Michael Myers house, the original Myers home? And this, ladies and gentlemen, leads me to my point that supports everything I've just said. This film and its script 100% focus on the idiot plot. Roger Ebert coined that phrase, and he applied it, ironically, to Halloween 2, 1981 where everyone in the movie must act like an idiot for the plot to work. And we have that in Halloween Kills in spades. Everyone in Haddonfield is a fucking idiot. From Tommy Doyle on down to Jamie Lee Curtis, every single person, including Jamie's daughter and granddaughter, 
they all cap out the stupidity in the end of this motion picture. Halloween Kills exists to spill blood. It's for the gore lovers and the body counters. There is really no story here. And why go through all the effort to ignore Halloween 2, 1981, and then go through the trouble of basically making a film that does nothing but evoke it? I don't understand that. Maybe David Gordon Green can talk to J.J. Uh, Abrams about what he did with Star Trek Into Darkness. You know, you go through all that trouble in 2009 uh, to, to totally give you a whole new story and a chance to go off in different directions. And then in the follow-up, just basically remake The Wrath of Khan. Look, nostalgia is Halloween Kills Blood. It was the blood of the 2018 film as well. Nostalgia makes us remember things differently. It's what creates the good old days in our minds. It makes us react differently also in the present. Halloween Kills does not suck. It is polarizing because there are many who love this genre who ask for something new. And all this film does is give you more of the same. It's really nothing more than an elaborate remake of Halloween 2 1981. And that makes absolutely no sense. I mean, maybe they'll turn around and Halloween ends, the third film coming up. It's being edited right now in post-production. And maybe they will reveal that Laurie is Michael's sister after all. At this point, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. Halloween Kills is made by fans, for fans, and really not much more. If you enjoyed it, terrific. If you hated it, terrific. You don't need to assault people online or block or mute them because they don't share your opinion either way. People love or hate my own death house, and they have also not cared for my other films. And no matter how many positive reviews come in, there's always going to be someone who doesn't like it. I mean, shit, there are people that don't like Jaws and there were original reviews that trashed the film. A comment also is not a review. See, people confuse that. A true review does what I did right here in this episode. It displays a fundamental understanding for the art or its subject, its history, and the ability to structure opinions based on fact, data, and critical analysis. A comment is just a few lines of your opinion, or it sucked, or it's awesome. Those are not reviews. Oh, and happy Halloween. <laughs>